Well, this morning as we, we come to Luke, we come to a continued story that Jesus is telling on his way to the cross. He's left Galilee, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem, and we're getting snippets of, of his teaching on the way, and, and what he's doing is teaching how to be a disciple. And in the section today, it's just very appropriate for today, he's teaching about the new kingdom, and that there's a new kingdom coming because there's this realization that the kingdom we're in now isn't what it should be, right? This is a fallen, broken world. And as, as we hear from Horizon today, we're reminded of that. Just the very need for organizations like Horizon should make us realize this isn't what it should be. This isn't what God intended to be. And so we have this conflict between the world we live in, the kingdom of, the, of this world, the kingdom of Satan, and our citizenship as believers is in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so what does that dilemma look like? And what does that conflict look like? Now, as we enter into Jesus's teaching, we have to realize we have a whole lot more information than the disciples had. When they heard kingdom, they thought king coming to wipe out Rome and boom, we have paradise now. 2,000 years later, we know that Jesus was bringing in the church and he was starting the kingdom in the hearts of his believers. And so we, we have this, this knowledge that we can sort of come to the text and we can lose the wonder and the awe of the disciples hearing this for the first time. This was radically different. This was upside down to any concept of kingdom that they had. And so Jesus teaches what the kingdom of God looks like. If you are wondering where we're going today and want to fill in your blanks early, so that way you know what's going on, we're going to have four points this morning. We're going to look at an example of the kingdom. We're going to look at the unstoppable growth of the kingdom. We're going to look at entrance into the kingdom. And finally, we're going to look at the bringer's yearning for the kingdom, Jesus' yearning for the kingdom. So now the, the OCD members of us, you're, you're happy you have your notes filled in, and I'm with you on that, so I can't, um, Lorraine caught me straightening the table by an inch out on the patio this week, and she's like, that's your OCD kicking, and I'm like, yep, and it looks better, it looks right, <laughs> and so um, that's where we're going today. Turn with me to Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, if you don't have a Bible, there's one right under a chair around you, a black hardcover Bible. We invite you to take that. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take that home with you, please, as our gift to you. And um, thank you very much. But we want to be sure that we're, we're just anchored in God's Word and teaching out of God's Word. So Luke chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 10 through 35 this week at this upside-down kingdom and Jesus' question, are you in? Are you part of it? Now, last week, interestingly enough, we talked about the coming of Christ. And if I had a picture to represent last week's message, it would be this one. Repent, the end is near. And if you remember, we talked about the urgency and Jesus' is coming and he could come at any time. And Jesus is calling to repent. Well, it's just very natural that now he goes on to talk about what that kingdom that he's bringing looks like. And he starts with a story that is a familiar story. We've seen two other Sabbath healings already. But he starts with a story that just introduces us to the kingdom. It's an example of the kingdom. And it's a reminder that kingdom living is defined by loving God and loving others, not religious legalism, which is what the kingdom of this world, even the religious institutions of this world pursue. 
The kingdom, kingdom living is defined by loving God and loving others, not religious legalism. And this was upside down. Starting in verse 10, and, and we'll read through 10 through 17, and then we'll unpack this a little bit. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Do you catch sort of the um, snobbishness there? Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this thing, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. And so we have the, the, the first story in the sequence of stories is an example of what the, the kingdom looks like. It's an example actually of the incursion of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of Satan. And, and he starts to push back the kingdom of Satan in this woman's life. But we see the resistance to that. Starts in verse 10 that Jesus is teaching. It's, his, it's a common practice that you invite a visiting rabbi to teach in the synagogue. And so they invited him. I really don't know why they kept inviting him to teach. At this point, he had a reputation and they should have known better. But hey, this is God's sovereignty and I love it. And so Jesus is teaching and it says that there's a woman there who has this disabling spirit. Did you catch how long? For 18 years. For 18 years, she has been bent over and can't raise up. For 18 years, she is in pain. She is suffering from this. For most of us, 18 years of something like that just becomes exhausting. It becomes demoralizing and we just give up. Notice she's in the synagogue still worshiping. This is a testimony to who she is, a testimony to her faith. Some doctors have, have tried to identify this. I was, I was trying to, to say some of the words. I'll try it now. Spondylitis deformans. My nurses, is that close? If it's not, I'm not a doctor. No excuses. But it's, it's something where the bones of her spine were fused into a rigid mass, one doctor wrote. And, and apparently from the text, we see that this was caused by Satan. Not all sickness is caused by Satan, but in this case, Jesus knew this one was caused by Satan 18 years ago, and, and she's been in bondage to this for 18 years. And then you see in verse 12 some key features of Luke. Luke is always highlighting the value of women in an age that d defined everything through men. What does Jesus do? He notices her and he calls her over. He takes the initiative. Now, I, I don't know what she's feeling at that point. She's like, no, no, don't point me out. No, 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 I'm just here worshiping. But she had no idea what Jesus was about to do for her and the change that was about to happen. And so this woman that is normally spurned by society, Jesus initiates a call to, and he calls her up, not to embarrass her, but to change her life. And he touches her, and she is healed. And do you catch her response? The bondage of Satan for 18 years is loosed. 
And immediately she was made straight in verse 13. And she glorified God. I love that phrase. It's a little phrase, but how important is it to glorify God when we see him work? How important is it to praise him for answered prayer for what he's done? And this tells us again a a little bit about her character. We don't get much, but her first thought is praise God. And she glorifies God. And this act is used as an act of worship to draw people to the Messiah. And so the ruler of the synagogue was like, great, the Messiah's here. Let's go. But no, we see in 14 a very different response. And this is a comparison of two responses. The response of the woman who glorifies God and and the response of the Jewish leader who defies God and tries to constrain God and limit God's work. It's really interesting because if you remember the first time in Luke that we saw Jesus in the synagogue, the very first time he was in Nazareth and he opened the scroll and he read from Isaiah and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And here we come to this. What is he doing for this woman? He is setting at liberty those who have been oppressed. For 18 years, he sets her at liberty. And it's interesting because this is the last record we have of Jesus in a synagogue. And so his first one, he says he's setting at liberty the captive. His last one, he proves he's still doing that. And it just bookends his, his synagogue ministry. From here, he won't, we don't have him recorded in the synag- teaching in a synagogue again. And he, he'll be on his way to Jerusalem where he is crucified. But this was an example of Jesus pushing back the kingdom of Satan. Uh, of an incursion of, of taking Satan's bondage and freeing people one at a time freeing their hearts, freeing their lives to glorify him out of the bondage of Satan. What an incredible story. But then we do have verse 14. And this is the sad part of the, four, the, of the story. The ruler of the synagogue rejected the kingdom. This was the kingdom not just rejected though, it was opposed. And, and if you look at the wording, the ruler of the synagogue is indignant because of what Jesus has done. So he's not just... Okay, whatever. He's indignant. He's angry. He's frustrated. And so like a coward, he addresses the people instead of Jesus. He's, he's chicken. I don't, I don't know how to describe that. And, and he's, he's indignant. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. That's against the rules. Not allowed to heal people. The only way you were medically allowed to help somebody is if you genuinely thought their life was at risk. Otherwise, it was considered work. In, um, not in the Old Testament, actually, but, but in the Jewish traditions that had arisen around the Old Testament, it was considered work. And so he addresses the crowd, not Jesus. And, and that's where he says there's six days in which work ought to be done. And that word ought is important because we're going to see it repeated. It means must out of necessity. And so the first thing he says is out of necessity. We, we should be working six days a week. Now, maybe that's going to get pushed back this morning, but because um, we only work five days a week generally. Uh, I know the joke is I get to work one day a week, but um, really there are more things that happen at the church office. But there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. You see no compassion here for the woman. You see no joy 
and a woman for 18 years has had her life decimated and she's healed? Where is the joy? We, we, we can so often miss the obvious and miss what God is doing because of our own little pet peeves of how things should be done, of what we think should happen. And he ignores those major things because even more major than the woman's healing is the victory over sin and Satan. That should have been eye-opening. But he couldn't accept that because if he accepts that this is victory over Satan, he has to accept that this is the Messiah. And, and the spiritual blinders say, I cannot believe this is the Messiah because I do not want to follow Christ. And so we see this response. Some have wondered why Luke includes this story. Because we have, like I said, several other stories of Sabbath healings. We had the demon-possessed boy earlier in the book and the man with the withered hand all on the Sabbath and all in this interaction. And, and, and many scholars, and I think it's a great way of thinking, this is conjecture, we don't know for sure, but think this is what they call a mirror miracle where it actually happened, but Jesus is doing it again to see if the leaders learned anything to see if if their response would be different than last time. Because he taught last time this was wrong. He taught that their attitude about the Sabbath and the law needed to be different. And he's testing them now. Let's see. Nope. Not different. There's not a repentance. There's not a listening. There's not an openness to the kingdom. And so Jesus responds um, very directly. He says, Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. And that is a stinging, harsh rebuke. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And and he just brings up what they do every day, what they do every Sabbath, probably that morning. He said, you know, didn't this morning, didn't you untie your animals from, from the feeding trough and take them over to water so they don't die? And, and I can just picture the man starting to hear this. And maybe he was getting it, maybe he wasn't, but the crowds were going to start getting this. They're like, ah, I see where he's going with this. And so he says, don't you do this. Don't you lead them to water. Now, part of the law is they had found ways to water their animals without, without a, um, <laughs> defying the Sabbath. And so they, they would get around the limits of Sabbath travel because you could only travel about six-tenths of a mile from home. And so one of the things they would do is they would build some sort of crude structure around the public well. Because once you had a structure there, you could call it a private residence. Since the well was now a home, you had an extra, you know, so long to travel. And as long as your cow was in there, and actually they they broke it down to the greater part of the cow must be within the enclosure when it drinks. Then they were fine. What started as probably a noble attempt to honor the law had degraded into a complete absence of a love for God and a love for others, which Jesus said controls the entire law. In fact, every command of God can come back to one of those two things. Are we loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are we loving our neighbors as ourselves? And they'd missed the point. They were focused on a leaf and forgot that they were in a forest. And so Jesus is bringing this up. And and he goes on in verse 16, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, and do you get what he's doing? This is a human being made in the image of God. She's a daughter of Abraham. She's a Jew. Shouldn't she be loosed? 
from her bonds on the Sabbath day. And, and there's some parallelism that we can miss in English. Um, the word for loosed there is the same word as untie your ox and donkey. Jesus is making sure they don't, they don't miss the point. He's just driving it home. He's saying, it's okay to un- untie your ox, donkey, or cow. It's okay to untie your meat, but it's not okay to untie a child of God, a Jew, a person. Are you nuts? Are you getting the flavor of the story? And I think Jesus is that direct and that bold here and pointing it out. And he says, she's been bound for 18 years. She should be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Another, another parallelism between 14 and 16 is that word ought that I mentioned or must out of necessity. Because Jesus says, or the, the rabbi had said, six days you must work. You ought to work. It's right. It's necessary. And in verse 16, Jesus said, and it's necessary and right, and ought not this woman be healed? And so Jesus is saying, it's not just okay to heal on the Sabbath. It is necessary to heal on the Sabbath. When we understand why the Sabbath, that this was a day set apart for God, not ourselves, that it was a day set apart for his holiness, his work, to love God and love others, Jesus' point is, how could you not help her? You're actually breaking the Sabbath if you don't help her. That is profoundly upside down for what they were thinking. But think about it. What if we had this idea that that the Sabbath was just for us? And, and, you know, okay, I'm going to go to church, give a little bit of time to God, and then I'm to my man cave or she shed this afternoon, and we're going to watch the Dodger game, and they're going to beat Colorado. And then this evening, we get to watch the Cavaliers completely blow it again, and um, it's going to be a good day. And if the kids happen to interrupt and say something, I'm going to be like, be quiet, go back to your cave, because this is me day. And I'm exaggerating, but we can get that way with the Sabbath. We can get that way and not realize this is a day that the Bible has said isn't for you. It's to set apart as holy from your normal work to be used for God. And Jesus is saying, isn't it right? This is what you should be about today. She is a person made in the image of God. We have an opportunity to let her loose from her, from her bond. You know, if, if someone came today while we're out looking at courage in, in the van and there was a young lady that was pregnant and deciding what to do with life, would we really say, you know, why don't you come in on Tuesday during office hours and talk to me? No, you'd fire me, rightfully so. Because we have an opportunity there to do God's work. And if we don't do it, it is sin. This is such a convicting passage. But it's an example of the kingdom that God wants to to dive in and wrest control from Satan. And ultimately, he's going to do that. But he's starting now one person, one heart, one soul at a time, and he wants us to join him. We're to love others. That's important even on the Sabbath. See, we see in this an example of where genuine love for God leads and a genuine love for others and where religious legalism leads. And the difference could not be greater. Could not be greater. This is an upside-down kingdom. And Jesus has a lot to say about it. You know, it we, we talked a lot more about the Sabbath when we talked Luke 6. You can go back and listen to that. We talked about just a lot of practical ways to, 
to biblically honor the Sabbath today and, and with what Jesus has taught us. I encourage you to think that through. But here, the bigger picture is this is a defeat of Satan. This is a defeat of Satan's effect on this world. And, and the bigger picture is the growth of God's kingdom. And so the very next point, the very next section that he goes to, is that the, uh, he talks about the growth of the unstoppable kingdom. The kingdom starts small, but will most assuredly grow to rule all things. The kingdom starts small, but will most assuredly grow to rule all things. It starts with events like this. Lives that are taken from the the realm of Satan. Souls that are saved because people turn to God. Because we are willing to step out and do God's work. It's God's rule in our hearts and victory over Satan. You know, before we go on, I want to explain kingdom. Because we use kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven a lot. I would hold they're the same thing. So I want to give you some definitions. Because this can be some Christianese that were like, yes, all for the kingdom. And someone can say, what does that mean? Like, I don't know. I serve Jesus, which is great. We do. But, but let's define this a little bit. I, I have a definition there. The kingdom represents the reign and rule of God in the hearts and lives of his people culminating in a physical new heaven and earth where God reigns as king. Just a, a simple definition. You may have heard that. Like, That's not that simple. That's like a two-line sentence. But, but what it's saying is that the kingdom of God now has started. Jesus says it's arrived. It's here now. It starts with God's reign and rule in the lives of those that follow him. And so that's the already. You hear sometimes we talk about the already and the not yet with the kingdom. The already of the kingdom says Jesus has already started his kingdom he's initiated his kingdom and it's in your heart and it's my in my heart it's wherever he is is being allowed to rule and reign right now but we know that that's going to to grow and that is going to culminate with the second return of christ which we talked about last week and he will set up a final kingdom where there is no sin and there is no effect of, of the fall that the the curse has been reversed and satan has been undone There won't be a need for for places like Horizon because there will be no more sin. And that's the culmination of the kingdom. That's the not yet. That's what we're looking forward to. Steve Timmis, um, he runs the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. I like his definition of kingdom too, and I gave that just to sort of help us understand. The kingdom of God is where the Father's rule is exercised through the Son by the power of the Spirit so that it is willingly obeyed gloriously displayed and happily enjoyed among his people in the world. And so basically, the kingdom of God is present now in his church. It's present in our hearts. But this is a a, a small taste of what it will be when sin is wiped out, when Jesus returns and he sets up his glorious kingdom. The already and the not yet. And so with that background, let's look at verse 18 and the illustrations he uses. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And he's going to use two quick illustrations here. The first is the mustard seed. And it's a tiny seed. You see see a picture? I think you see that. Yeah. Well, you can sort of see that. Those little specks in his hand, those are mustard seeds. But the next picture shows what it grows up to be. So you're, you're talking 10, 15 foot high trees. Some say, you know, technically they're bushes. I'd call that a tree. Um, and the, the point, though, isn't whether it's a tree or a bush or being precise with botany. Is that? Yeah, whatever it is. Um, 
The point is that what is tiny and what starts tiny grows to, to be this huge tree. And in fact, he says that the birds of the air make nests. And that's a, a terminology. And if we had time, we could go to the Old Testament and look that often references to the nations all coming in. That this kingdom is going to bring people of all nations together. It provides peace and security for them. And so we see this growth, this unstoppable growth from the tiny to the large. It has modest beginnings, but it ends in a glorious kingdom. And and so Jesus is contrasting the start and the end here and saying, rest assured, even though this world looks dark, the kingdom in the end wins. The kingdom is unstoppable. It's not going to be cut down. And so he gives us this illustration. The second illustration he gives is from bread making. And he says, and again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And and the idea, again, we talked about leaven is sort of like sourdough starter or some sort of starter. And you take a little piece of it and put it in bread. The amount of bread she's talking here is 50 to 60 pounds of flour. That apparently is a lot of flour. It feeds around 150 people. And this little tiny bit of leaven, it says, will permeate the entire batch. But it takes some time. And Jesus is saying, that's the picture of the kingdom. It starts with my disciples, the 12. And then we had the 72. And we have those that are following Christ. But it's going to grow. And the gospel is going to spread in the hearts and lives of men and women that follow me. And there's a surety here. There's a comfort here. But it also speaks to the transforming power because the leaven transforms the the dough into something that rises and and makes yummy bread instead of flat unleavened bread, which is yummy for those that like it. Um, (laughs) But the kingdom of God is powerful. It changes lives. It comes from this modest beginning and now has spread to what it is today and will continue to grow. It's estimated that there are 2.3 billion Christians in the world right now. That's a lot more than there were when Jesus said this. Now, I know, I know that, that those estimates include people that probably aren't really Christians and there's all kinds of definitions of Christian. There's still a lot. In, in some of the, the conservative churches, they're estimating nearly 100 million Christians in China now a closed country that doesn't allow Christianity. 100 million Christians in China compared to just 50 years ago, 5,000 by their estimates. Starts small, but it's unstoppable because it's the power of the gospel and the power of God. Nothing can stop the kingdom of God. Trust Him. Nothing can. We can look around and we can think evil's winning. We can just look at the court cases in, in, in court and, and some of the laws being passed and we can become distressed. That's not what God wants us to do because that's not trusting God. That, that's, that's getting our eyes off God to this world and saying, oh no, this world is stronger than the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's spreading. Nothing's going to stop it. The church is going to last until Christ returns. It's going to last. Now, I'm not saying this is the final form of the kingdom. That's a, that's a different doctrine that we could talk about. But the church is going to last and continue to grow in the lives of believers and continue to transform this world. Trust Him. We get to the next section, entrance into the kingdom. 
The kingdom has only one way in and time is limited. Don't miss it. The kingdom has only one way in and time is limited. Don't miss it. And Jesus begins to talk about the narrow and shut door. In verse 22, He went on His way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to Him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And and you've got to understand, this was a debate of the time between religious scholars. This would be sort of like predestination and free will for us. Okay, And it would be like someone who needs Christ, who is desperate for Christ, saying, but what about free will and predestination? No, no, that's not the point. They need Christ. They need the gospel. And so Jesus sees through this, and he sort of answers their question, but he comes back to, you need to make a decision. You need to follow Christ. He said, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, that's where their red flags first start to go off. Because in, in, in Jew, Jewish world, all Jews, except those that were really bad, all Jews would make it into the kingdom. And so this, for Jesus to say, many of you who seek to enter aren't going to make it in, this is upside down from everything they believe. This is an example of a narrow door in a wall. And, and, and so you'd have to find the door and make it the way in. And Jesus is just using examples that are around him But he says, strive to enter the narrow door. That word for strive means, man, seek after it, chase it, pursue it. Make sure that you are going through the narrow door. There are all kinds of things that keep us from turning to Christ, that keep people from turning to Christ. Whether it's the obstacle of pride or temptations of this world, I like what I'm doing, I don't want to give it up, or self-reliance or stubbornness. Or intellectualism, if I can't understand everything God is doing, it must not be true. Well, we're not God. And if we can understand everything God is doing, then he's not God. And Jesus is saying, get past the obstacles. Get past those. We're not earning our salvation here, but we are seeking Christ and accepting his gift of salvation. But we know from later in the text, they weren't willing to do that. They weren't willing to go in. See, going through the narrow door means to to acknowledge our sin and to say we need a Savior and to give our lives to Jesus Christ and to say, you died on the cross for my sins. You took my place. You took the debt, the penalty for sin I couldn't pay, and so I give you my life. I accept your gift of payment for my sin and of salvation. That's the narrow door that is so hard to go through. Because to go through a narrow door, to go through a small door, you have to stoop a little bit and you have to humble yourself. Which is really interesting tied with the first story. A picture of humility and stooping. And Jesus says, unless you're like that, you're not in. You're not in. And he says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. And we start to see that the door isn't going to stay open for long. There's a time limit. And once the door is shut on our decision to follow Christ, the door is shut. And this comes back to last week's text. Jesus could come back tonight. We could, we could have a car accident on the way home. Life could end today and the door's shut. So we have a limited amount of time to follow Christ. 
And that should create an urgency. For us as believers, that should create an urgency of sharing the gospel and of making sure that we know this Christ. See, knowing Christ is going through the door, not knowing about Christ. And there are a lot of people that know a lot about Christ and that can tell you all about the New Testament and the Old Testament that aren't going to make it into the kingdom of God. And I would dare say in churches across America, there are people sitting in chairs and pews this morning, maybe even here, that have been putting on the show of Christianity but aren't going to be in the kingdom of God. And that is a chilling, chilling opportunity for self-inspection. Do I know God? Have I given my life to Him? Do I believe what Jesus is saying? And, and do I know Him? Have I entered into relationship with Jesus Christ? See, this is the only way. The narrow door is the only way in and it speaks to the exclusivity of it because no other option pays for our sin. And you can think through this logically. No other option pays for sin than what Jesus is presenting as his entrance into the kingdom. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's not being intolerant. That's pointing people to the solution. If if you have cancer and I point you to 10 different solutions and I know only one works, I'm a jerk. I point you to the one that works. And so this idea that all paths lead to God when they don't is something we must fight against. And Jesus is picturing this narrow door that leads to this grand kingdom. But you've got to go through the door. Now, just to give you a humorous illustration of this, next picture. You guys know where this is? This is Disneyland, right? Now, now you can press the analogy and it doesn't work in some areas. I know there's two tunnels. But, but let's just assume... <laughs> and I know you can get on the monorail and get into the park a different way. I've wanted to dig a tunnel from my backyard to Tom Sawyer's Island and, and get in anytime I want. But um, No, but picture Disneyland, okay? This is the magic kingdom. We use that word because it's amazing. What happens if you don't go through the tunnel? What? You don't get in. You're stuck out here. You can say, oh, what a nice Mickey. Do they still have the flowered Mickey there? Yeah, but, but you're not enjoying the kingdom. Now, now keep in mind, you go there, and, and as you're walking up, you go through the, the metal detectors, and you go through the checkpoint, and, and if you skip those, bad things happen. And... and <laughs> This is a narrow way. There's one path. And then you go to the ticket booth and you give your life savings for your ticket and go into debt for your kids' tickets. And, and it's a debt you can't pay. And then you stand in line through the turnstile. See what I'm going to do with that? <laughs> you go through the turnstile and then finally you go through the tunnel and you are in this amazing kingdom, the happiest place on earth where kids never cry. Sorry, a little bit of cynicism there. I took kids there when they were young. But we don't tell Disneyland they're being intolerant because there's only one way in. It's the way you get in. And the rewards of that are amazing. And, and, and Village, if you are here tonight or to this morning and you have never given your heart to Christ, this is the time because you're standing on the outside of the tunnel, outside of the gate, and Jesus is saying, I paid the price for your sin. You just have to follow me and give your life to me. 
And it is amazing what waits. Now, now, yeah, I did mention about the money and the debt. We can never go through this on our own. And, and let's say you couldn't pay for Disneyland. And someone comes along and says, I have free tickets for you if you'll just accept them. That's what Jesus has done for us in entrance to his kingdom. Salvation is free. It's not easy, but it's free. He says, if you just turn your life to me. But we don't. The leader of the synagogue doesn't. Jerusalem doesn't in the next section that we'll we'll look at as we close. This is the entrance into the kingdom. He goes on in verse 24, Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. We went to church. We went to Awana. We went to Sunday school. We taught. you, You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he's speaking of eternal destiny and hell. And and when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets, when you see the heroes of, of, of Jewishness, when you see the heroes of your faith all at a, at a dinner table with the Savior and you're not there, you're going to feel it. And all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. And then, then he just drives the point home more. And people will come from the east and west and from the north and the south and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. There's going to be Gentiles there. Praise God for most of us. And Jesus is saying, it's not about your heritage. I don't care if you're a Jew. It's not about, for us, our Christian heritage. My parents are Christians. That doesn't get me into the kingdom. It's only if I'm willing to follow Christ. That is the only way. And he finally ends that, and behold, some who are last will be first, and some are first who will be last. And he's saying, not all of you are going to get in. And this is another upside down part of the kingdom. It's a reversal. He's saying, not all, not all Jews are going to get in. Because it matters what you do with your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that matters. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. It's not too late yet. But at some point, that decision is made and we enter the consequence phase of that decision. We go to the last section. The bringers yearning for the kingdom. Jesus aches for those that don't become part of his kingdom. And, and as we talk about entrance and who's in and who's out, it's really easy to get, have a cold view of this. That Jesus is up there saying, ha, 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 you don't get in. Or, yeah, I like you, you can get in. And, and No, Jesus wants everyone to come in. And this is an offer available to all. The question is, do we reject it or not? And he says in verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees come and said to him, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. All kinds of debate about whether they're sincere or not. Doesn't say. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, that cunning, really sort of worthless person. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. And what Jesus is saying here, th- these aren't literal three days, but he's, he's saying, I have a plan. I have an agenda and I'm going to still cast out demons. I'm going to attack Satan. I'm going to change lives today and tomorrow. Third day at my schedule, I finish my course. I'll be in Jerusalem. 33 is parallel to that. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following 
for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And he's saying, I'm on schedule. You're not going to change my schedule. Yes, I'm going to die when I get to Jerusalem. You're going to kill me, but it'll be on my terms in my way. Jesus isn't worried here. He's not like, oh no, I didn't even think about Herod when I made this plan. No. And this is comforting for those of us that believe because God's plan is proceeding according to his design. Nothing more, nothing less. Because his design is perfect. Just as it is in your life and my life. And we fight his plan and we fight his design. But God's plan is proceeding according to his design. Jesus will bring his kingdom to the hearts of those that are willing. And he says, I will not alter my course for him. I will not change my time schedule. I will complete my mission. I find great comfort in that. I I want a God who knows what he's doing that I follow. Not a God who, who gets scared of Herod and changes his mind. But then we see Jesus' heart in 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And this is a longing for the city he loves, the people he loves. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And that verse brings tears to my eyes. Because he's saying, I yearn to just bring you under my arms and to protect you and to to take you into my kingdom. I have something so much more for you. But you won't come. You reject it. You're not willing. And so he gives a prophecy of what's going to happen in AD 70. He says, behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we know in AD 70, Jerusalem fell and the temple fell and the house was forsaken. And we are still waiting for a day of a new Jerusalem and a new heaven and new earth when God will restore that. And that is the day that we will, see bless, that we will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus brings it back to his coming. It's all tied together. And, and he says, no, there's, a day, there's hope here, but you've rejected me. There's going to be discipline now, but there's hope for those that are part of the true kingdom. Because there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You will genuinely say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we look at this section, please don't think it's only for those that don't know Christ. Now, if you don't know Christ, then take, take heed to the warning. Listen to the words carefully. Now's the time to enter the narrow door. Trust the king. But if you know Christ, number one, take comfort and take trust that you are part of the kingdom. Nothing can change that. You are who God says you are. We sang that this morning. But trust the king. Take comfort in that citizenship. Act like citizens of the kingdom. Can I say that one again? Act like citizens of the kingdom. If you're truly part of this new kingdom, if it's a new kingdom from the heart, if it's a true kingdom, are we acting any differently from the old? Am I committed? Am I all in to say, He is my king. I will follow him no matter what. And recognize the urgency. Let's bow our heads and thank God for what he's done. Lord God, we praise you for your sacrifice on the cross. I praise you for the narrow door because you didn't have to give any door. But you gave us a way to enter the kingdom. And Lord, it is a glorious grand kingdom as we already have your power inside of us. 
We already see you pushing back the kingdom of Satan. But Lord, we know that ultimately that won't happen until you return and and defeat Satan for the last time. And so we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly. And we look forward to that as we take this communion. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice. In Jesus' name.